Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. The Daily Telegraph called my guest for this episode the funniest man you've never heard of. The chair of BAFTA's television committee recently said, without him, some of the finest and most distinctive British comedies would not have been made, including The Royal Family, Paul and Pauline Calf, The Mighty Boosh, The Mrs Merton Show, Marion and Jeff, and Gavin and Stacey, to name but a few. His name? Henry Normal. In 1999, Henry set up the production company Baby Cow with comedian and writer Steve Coogan. They went on to make 400 TV shows and 20 films. Now aged 62, Henry has returned to his first love, poetry. You may have heard his very funny and moving series of programmes very recently on Radio 4. I wanted to talk to Henry about the craft of communications, how to write more engagingly, how to tell better stories, and how to use humour in our work. We covered these subjects and so much more. Henry is thoughtful, considered, warm and very perceptive. We spoke, in fact, for nearly two hours in his Brighton home overlooking the sea. And I have to be honest, this conversation proved really difficult to edit. It's still just over an hour long, so our longest episode yet. But I urge you to stick with it. Hear Henry talk about the rules of humour, the increasing danger of losing the context and analysis from today's news why Twitter is like shouting in the street, and what being the parent of an autistic son has taught Henry about communications and the real meaning of love. I admit we do stray often into subjects not directly related to IC. In fact, you could say the internal in this episode is perhaps more related to us as human beings. But do listen out for Henry's brilliant answer to one of the trickiest questions I ask. What would he do if he woke up one morning and was suddenly responsible for communicating to a workforce of 50,000? Enjoy. For listeners who might think that your world is very different from theirs, the world of entertainment, the arts, film, TV, radio. I wonder whether you can maybe start by dispelling a myth, because actually, am I right in thinking that the whole character and persona of Henry Normal came about through something very different from the life you're leading today? Would that be fair? Uh, Well, yes, I didn't start off thinking that I would ever be in the entertainment industry. That wasn't an option when I was a kid. So I was brought up on a council estate in Nottingham. I was born in 56, so it was sort of the 60s, 70s. And my dad worked at Rally for 40 years, which uh, Rally Industries, and my brother worked at Rally. So the idea was that I would go to Rally or something like that. I was destined for that. But my mum died when I was 11, and I became quite introvert. And so I read a lot. So consequently, I became a little bit more educated in the fact that I was reading. And so I managed to skip rally and go into insurance. I remember the careers officer saying to us that 
it was either banking or insurance. I, I thought I'll probably get bored of numbers because they're variations of 10, aren't they? <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I went into insurance. I do remember a bloke coming to our school and saying to us that he had the best job that we were ever likely to get. This was at uh, William Sharp Bilateral. And there was, I think it was uh, in the fifth year at that time, there was about 40, uh, 50 lads. And him saying, now lads, uh, I know you'll all want this job but it's only the very cream are going to get this job. What he was selling us was British Telecom Engineer. Oh, that was the, the pinnacle. Uh, the pinnacle, the height of ambition for us. <laughs> uh, and I remember thinking at the time, oh, I'm not going to get that job. I'm not good enough for that. I'm being quite disappointed that I wasn't good enough to be a British Telecom Engineer. How uh, my life would have changed if I'd gone that way. <laughs> so I went on to A-levels and then I got a job as an insurance broker. And what happened was that I worked hard because my dad had worked hard. He used to work seven days a week. So I worked very hard and I kept my head down and I became the manager of the whole office at the age of 21. Right. Now, I enjoyed working uh, as an insurance broker and I enjoyed the discipline of it and I enjoyed the application and it's sort of like a board game right and you learn to play the board game whether it be Monopoly or chess or whatever and you play it well and you get rewards so we doubled the size of the office within two years and I was doing very well but everybody I was talking to were in their 50s and it got to the stage where I was doing very well but I could see my whole life Mm. laid out and at 21 Talking to basically the owners of mortgage contractor businesses or the IOPS of all the other insurance companies, I thought I seemed to have grown too old. I'd got this thing at home where I'd got all my furniture and I got my knives and forks in the drawers and, and everything, and all very neat and tidy. And it was though I was constructing this world that you're supposed to have. Now, at the same time, punk happened. Right. So you've got this huge sort of anarchic idea and also Scar, which are two different philosophies in a way. Now, punk was interesting to me because it said you have the right to express yourself, no matter how good or bad you are. And Scar was saying, enjoy yourself. And I remember the song enjoy yourself it's later than you think mm. and there I was in Hull not enjoying myself well not, not in a full rounded way and at that time I didn't have a girlfriend or anything so I was putting myself very into work I think the punk philosophy as well seemed to say something about your sense of worth and what I was trying to get from work was a sense of worth and a sense of place in the world and trying to do that with security Yes. And insurance is a sort of a security business. It's about security. Yes. So it was interesting. But I got to the stage where I'd got enough confidence and courage to not want that much security. I'd instilled some security and some confidence in myself. Now, at the same time, what had happened when I was 14 was that I read a book, which I thought was a comedy book because I loved comedy. And it was a book by Spike Milligan called Small Dreams of a Scorpion. And I bought it thinking it was a comedy book and it was a poetry book. And it made me cry. A man that was so funny that could make me cry had a quite a profound effect on me. I thought, I love the fact that, that you can communicate in this way, that you can communicate to make friends with somebody and to entertain somebody, but you can also say quite personal and quite important things in quite a short space of time. And so I thought that was a great medium, very overlooked. So... I'd got an ambition to do something 
in that line, but I couldn't see how you could make a living doing it. And then in my 20s, I saw two people. I saw Roger McGough reading, and then I saw John Cooper Clark. And both those two people were doing very different things to very different audiences, but they were managing to find an audience and make a living. And uh, John Cooper Clark had a very youthful audience, and I thought, I might get laid as well. As a bonus. <laughs> Uh, so I, I sort of took a chance and at the age of 21, 22, I retired from insurance Wow! and I went to live with uh, my sister in Nottingham and she let me live with her for a, about a year and I wrote, I just wrote constantly. Funnily enough, all the work that I'd done at school and all the work that I'd done at the insurance brokers came in handy throughout my career in uh, creativity because I had the discipline And the thing is that you can have the best creativity in the world, but if you don't have discipline, you're not going to take it anyway. So you did actually approach your creativity as a job, in a way, those values of working hard that were instilled in you by your father? Well, it's you need two modes of operation for a career in creativity. You need a business head, but you also need playfulness, and you can't do them at the same time. So you have to be able to compartmentalise. Right. And it can be that your creative side is 10% of the time and your working side is 90% of the time. Mm. But if you don't have them both, I don't think you become rounded. And also, I don't think you do the job as well because you need to deconstruct what you're doing and find ways of making it better. Mm. It's interesting you talk about creativity and playfulness because I was wondering why, particularly in internal communications where we're talking to workforces, we don't use comedy very often if ever a because i guess it's risky but maybe we just need to be a little bit more playful with our ideas than we are at the moment is comedy risky you see i've studied comedy for many years and the essence of comedy really is attitude and power so in terms of attitude anything can be funny Right. It depends on your attitude to it. And anything can not be funny. It depends on your attitude to it. So the playfulness and the what if element of it. I remember reading Freud's jokes in their relation to the unconscious. And he explains it that what we do with a joke is we put an image in somebody's mind. And then with brevity, we twist that image. Right. And so the person then realizes the consequence of their misunderstanding. Right, yes. And then you laugh. So it's a sort of, in a way, having been tricked, it's about our coming to terms with being imperfect. And uh, that's something we all have as human beings. And so it's very cathartic and very useful. But, you know, it can be used as a tool to divide people, as with uh, racist jokes and, uh, you know, jokes about homophobia and, mm. and stuff like that. But it can be used to bring people together. It's probably the fear of being divisive as opposed to the fear of bringing people together. Yes, I guess you're right. I suppose what we're thinking is, do we know our audiences well enough to know what even might make them giggle, let alone laugh out loud? Maybe that's our fear. There's there's a few rules we have with the comedy. So one of the rules that I've always gone by and I think is, it's almost an unwritten rule amongst comedians is, you always punch upwards. Right. So in terms of power, you don't make jokes about people less powerful than yourself. Right. So you will make a joke about a starving Biafran, but you could make a joke about Donald Trump because Donald Trump is more powerful than you. But here's the other thing that you've got to go along with that. You don't make a joke about what people are. 
you make a joke about what people do. So you wouldn't make a joke about a fat person for being fat. No. If a fat person is fat and pretends that they're thin and pretends they're not eating, then there's an hypocrisy there, so you can make a joke about that. And see, people make jokes about Trump's hands being small. I don't like that. He tells so many lies that you can make jokes about the lies. He said uh, recently, I've kept more promises than I've made. <laughs> so sometimes you don't even have to make the joke. He, he's, he's done it himself, but you just have to point it out. But the idea of making jokes about the fact that he's got small hands, that's not his fault. So to me, that's not a, a valid target. This idea of power and the idea of what you do, not what you are, a good safeguard. So once you understand that, I could stand in a room with corporate audiences and you can confidently make jokes because you know that the targets that you're going to go for and the aspect of the targets are going to be things that we all understand. Yes, that's really interesting because I think you've really explained to me one of the things I was thinking about when I was looking back over your amazing body of work. But there seemed to me a bit of a thread running through, particularly maybe the Mrs. Merton show, the Royal Family, Gavin Stacey's, that it's not that you parody, because I don't think that's the right word, but the way that you reflect real life in a very warm and honest and respectful way. And I think that's maybe what you're describing. Well, it's always about your interpretation and your point of view the thing is you can't pretend to have somebody else's point of view and do it with authenticity but you are the expert on your opinion and your point of view so when we wrote the royal family for instance obviously stephen fry is a very clever man and i've met him and he's a lovely man but he couldn't write the royal family no because that's not a world that he's lived in so we were able to write that with authenticity from our point of view because we'd seen it and all we did I remember the first episode all we did was we wrote down what our mums and dads said right and that was it the first line of the first episode of the royal family is who's been phoned in Aberdeen (laughs) because all our dads were what you might call careful with money right Uh, and but the great thing is that we wrote these things down and then other people said oh yeah that's what my dad says as well and so it became something that we'd not seen before but that we could all share so I would say every bit of writing that you ever do is a reflection of yourself and it doesn't matter what it's on and the best writing is where you put more of yourself in and only you could have written that Right. Okay. That's and it's sort of like a, an alignment. If you think of if we put three or four objects on this table and then we wrote something about it, that would be different from anybody else because only we see those objects. Now, throughout your life, all the things that have happened to you are like that. They're unique juxtaposition. Now, you've seen the same things as everybody else, but you're seeing it from a different perspective to everybody else. And you're seeing at different times and things uh, correlate at different times. Therefore, what you'll create is going to be different from what anybody else will create. There'll be similarities because mm. other people will have seen some of those alignments and some people won't be conscious and some people will. Every comedian that I've ever met has got this thing where at some point they've stepped back and rather than unconsciously being part of the world they're consciously trying to understand and work out what the patterns of the world are right changing tack slightly the telegraph called you the funniest man that you'll never have heard of how do you feel about the fact i mean presumably 
you might quite like the fact that you can walk around and not be spotted and ask for an autograph. Is it quite nice, that degree of anonymity? I love that. When you think about throughout history, there are things that you really like. You don't know the person. You just know the work. So for me, I would love my work to be famous. But me as a person, no, I'm not bothered if anybody knows what I look like or anything. I don't really know what Wordsworth and Byron really look like or what we're like as people and what would be like to have a cup of tea with them. I have no idea. But you know the work. And it's the work that lasts. The great thing now is that having worked in quite large teams, I've gone back to working on a more pure form of communication where it's just me so poetry and radio and podcasts strength in <laughs> um, you know there's only a small team involved so it's not pulled every which way obviously when I was working on Philomena and Alan Partridge and the Mighty Bush and, and Gavin and Stacey and all those things it's quite a big team yes. being pulled every which way and although you know as the uh, the boss and the executive producer I try to ensure that it was the original vision. Most films work on the basis that you take a character at a stage in his life where he's discontent, but he doesn't know what to do about it. Then after about five to ten minutes, something happens that sets wheels in motion that leads you up to a point five minutes before the end where that character then has to make the biggest decision of their life And by making that decision, they get what they'd lacked at the beginning. Yes. That's more or less 99% of all films. (laughs) Things you have to do with all writing, I think, is not pull your reader or listener or viewer out of the world. And if there's something in there that makes you go, oh, you know, you're thinking about that rather than... Now, it's very difficult because we all have different triggers. I always remember Linda Smith saying that she was watching uh, Silence of the Lambs and as the killer got to... uh, Jodie Foster wanted got to the room with the killer, somebody behind her in the cinema said, oh, we've got that wallpaper. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that might be a good thing, I'm not sure. (laughs) Well, that's the sport at the moment. It has... (laughs) which is quite interesting because that brings me on to another subject I imagine when you were running Baby Cow you you must have been sent quite a bit of writing scripts and film ideas and all the rest of it share with us some of the real sort of common mistakes that you must have seen time and time again in people's writing is it this thing about people not really finding their own personal unique voice and trying to be maybe someone else well, there's a bit of that. So I worked for 17 and a half years for uh, Baby Cow and I read all the scripts. Oh, you did? Uh, wow. Yeah, because I commuted from Brighton to London. I'd got an hour every day there and an hour every day back that I could sit and, and read. So I read uh, lots and lots and lots of scripts. Obviously, if you don't laugh within the first 20 pages, you're not going to read the rest of it. Right, OK. Because um, page is about a minute. Right. And if there's no jokes in the first 20 minutes then people have turned over. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, there's some I didn't get to the end of. Yes. Uh, The most common mistake, whenever I talk to people, and and this includes even the people that you would think are the most experienced, right down to the people starting, 
The thing that they never seemed to understand was who they were writing for. Really? So I would say to people, I get a new writer in and I might enjoy the script and I'd, I'd say, it's a great script. What channel is it for? Right. And they'd go, oh, I don't know. Wow. And I said, well, but you watch the television. You must know. Now, the channels are different. If you're sending something to a magazine, yes. right, Playboy is very different from Gardening Weekly. Yes, yes. So, you know, uh, although there's beds involved in that. But, <laughs> uh, but, but you, you might, you, might uh, um, you know, target, you know, what you were writing for weeks. And so I'd say to them, well, have you put a commercial break in it? Right, so, you know, uh, basically a, a script for the BBC, 30-minute script. Most comedies are 30 minutes. It's going to be about 32 pages because it's a page minute. It's 32 right. to 35 pages. If it's for one of the commercial channels, they have a commercial break. So their scripts are shorter. They're uh, usually, it's usually 22 minutes, 11 minutes, a break, and then 11 minutes. So your script will be about 25 minutes, mm. you know, a break after about 12 or 13. The BBC's got four channels. Which of those four channels are you writing it for? And they go, well, which one wants it? And they go, no, 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 no that's not how you've got to approach it because they're very different. Mm. BBC One is very different from BBC Four. Right? Something that would appeal and work on BBC One is different from BBC Four and, strangely enough, is different from BBC Two, although lots of things have moved from BBC Two to BBC One. And I say, whenever I talk to writers, the attributes of their script, they don't really understand in that way of... There's my battleground. And there's beyond the BBC, there's Channel 4, ITV, Sky, Dave. You know, there's my battleground. I'm making my writing work for that battleground. I would always ask the channels, what's the gap at the moment? What haven't you got? Yes. Not what you've got. You've, you've got that. What is the thing with, you haven't got? I always remember with uh, BBC Three, me saying, I've uh, got no Chinese people on BBC Three. And uh, Stuart Murphy, who was head of BBC Three, said, no. I said, well, I've got a show for you. Right. Uh, Chinese sketch show. I know a lot of Chinese comedians. I wanted to call it Saturday Night Live. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, Did you get away with that? No, no, we ended up with sweet and sour. Uh, um... So I'm going to do something really unfair to you. And I'm going to say that all of a sudden you've woken up one morning and you are responsible for communicating to a workforce. Let's just make up a number, say 50,000 people. Yeah. You're responsible for communicating to that workforce. What's the first thing you do? What's the first step you might take? Well, we need to decide what business we're in. Okay. And we need to communicate what the adventure is. Right. Because going to work, to work is not enough. It has to be an adventure. You have to be building something. You have to be making something. So whatever it is that we're doing, the first thing to communicate is what a great thing it is to do that. Mm. So when I was in insurance, it could be boring, but if you think about it, you can't build an empire. You can't build trade. You can't send something safely to Australia without risk. So in insurance, the core value of it was that you were helping industry, you were helping enterprise, you were helping things work by helping to mitigate that risk. And that, that's a good thing to do. Yes. Do you know what I mean? If you think you're going to work and all you're doing is uh, scribbling on bits of paper. I mean, I, I was actually the photocopier when I first started because <laughs> we didn't have a photocopier in back in those days. So all I did was copy things from one piece of paper to another wow. so that we got the information because we hadn't got a photocopier. Uh, eventually we got a Gestetzner and I got bumped up. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I got promoted above the Gestetzner. Uh, but even at that first stage... 
you know, the thought process was this was an industry that helps other people take risks. <laughs> Finding whatever that core adventure is that you're doing, yes. whatever that thing that makes you want to come to work because that's how you're changing people's lives. Yes. As opposed to what the the more mundane physicality of most days may be. Yes, absolutely. Organisations now, there's a lot of talk about organisations finding their purpose. Yes. I love the idea of an adventure because I think that's, yeah, yeah, it's got a story element. You are affecting other people's lives, aren't you? That's the thing that it's not, this is not something that is just the people that are working. It's not just something for them. It's about you addressing the rest of the world. Yes. So your organisation as an organisation... So I would hope that Baby Cow, whenever anybody sees Baby Cow on the back of a television programme or a film, that you'd go, ah, well, it's intelligent, it's uh, well-produced, it's uh, thought through, it's funny, it's not uh, racist, sexist, or, you know, uh, demeaning to anybody in any way. It's got an inclusive... So all these values are built up through saying that's what we're going to do, that's... getting like-minded people. Mm-hmm. So even the fact that, that comedy went through such a big change in my generation from, you know, people doing Irish jokes and jokes about mother-in-laws and stuff, that the adventure for us was to say, no, let's bring people together with comedy rather than mm-hmm. divide them. That's a good adventure. Yes. And uh, for people to get on board with that, that makes you want to go into work. Yes. So it's finding whatever that is for that particular company. That sounds absolutely perfect. I'm going to take you back to, I think, 2007 and a programme you made, I think, for Ford called Where Are The oh, Joneses? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, we're going back to 2007 and this is, if I'm right, the audience got involved. This was a, a series of programmes on the internet. The mm-hmm. audience got involved via social media to direct almost what happened to the characters. Yeah, yeah. Did that feel incredibly innovative at the time? Because it uh, sounds it. It, it did and, and it was fun because... Because it was innovative and we didn't know exactly what we were doing. So <laughs> it started from the idea that uh, Ford came to us and said, we want to do something on the internet and we want some interaction. So we said, well, we have to have a story that can go anywhere. So we came up with this storyline that a woman found out that she was the child of uh, sperm donation. Right. And she had access to the names of all the other children. Ah. But she didn't have access to the name of the dad. I see. So she wanted to go and find the other children in order to find the dad. So that was the journey. Right. But of course, that leaves you a very open canvas because where she goes, Mm. who she meets. uh, So every, what you might call, episode as such can take you in a different direction. So we got the spine of the idea. So we called it Where Are the Joneses? So essentially the idea being that they're all the same family Mm. and we don't know where they are. So that's where we start from. So this was when I'd never heard of Twitter. And I remember thinking, nobody's involved in this. This will be, you know... Uh, this will never take off. Two blokes in a, in a room somewhere with nothing better to do. But of course, it's, you know, it's taken off massively. But also, you know, other uh, YouTube was, uh, even then was, because uh, these things are quite modern phenomena. Very. Was picking up. And there was lots of other, we always say YouTube, there was lots of other video sharing uh, yes. places that I found. And, uh, you know, I think there was, a, there was about 100. 
good. Right, uh, OK. So the idea was to get the little films onto these platforms and the interaction with the platform would be the thing. So we started off, what we did was we filmed the first week but we said, as we were filming it, because we needed to give something for you to be able to feed off. So we said, right, now tell us what happens in the next episode. And we built up a system whereby we got feedback in. And we were able to decide, because we didn't use it all. I mean, no. we, we might have got uh, you know, 20 or 30 instructions a day. Uh, and we'd, we'd take three or four and say, these look good. And we'd feed that to the car. Now, what I had is I had uh, two actors, main actors in a car, uh, producer, director, uh, mm. and sound guy. So I got four people in the car. I got two cars, actually, uh, both Ford, obviously. Of course. And we just continuously filmed. And so for the period we did it, I think we did about 52, as I recall. Wow. And I think it's still the longest-running comedy series on the internet. It was quite a, it's quite a ride. I mean, are you surprised? We're more than a decade on now and social media has obviously exploded. Twitter did okay in the end. Yeah. Are you not surprised perhaps that there's not more participation from the audience in programme making? No, I think what surprises me more is that there's not more branded because I, right. I, thought, it, I thought it worked for, for Ford and we did a, another thing with uh, Alan Partridge for Fosters. So you're not sniffy at all about branded content. You'd be... Oh, no, sorry, sorry. I, I, I meant to say that as a result of that, that there was an opportunity for the fact that we've got more comedians than we can get on the television and we've got people not being able to, you know, TV companies set up to make product that can't get on the television, that we can make product directly for the internet with product placement and product endorsement. And, do you know, I think the programmes that we made, the Alan Partridge, it even went on to Sky after we'd made it for Foster's and Foster's got a big advert mm. for that because we made it well enough. And mm. I think we made We're the Joneses well enough that, we, you know, there was uh, one stage we were selling that to America, mm. that you can make very good programmes, but you can make them with branded contests. I'm actually all in favour of product placement to help fund programmes on the television. I tried very much with Channel 4 and uh, Sky and even uh, the BBC to say, look, this saves us all money. If you're in a kitchen, you're going to have uh, washed up liquid. You know, what they tended to do on the set was turn the label away. I say, no, turn it towards us. If it says fear of liquid, turn it towards us. We'll get good to theory and uh, say, you know, give us some money for it. Yeah. It wouldn't alter the way you make programmes. You just make sure that, as, as you do now, you don't have undue prominence. This is sort of the, the rule uh, yes. for, for product placement at the moment. But the idea of going through England and uh, doing a lot of these programmes and we never seen a label... That doesn't reflect England. It doesn't. Because yeah. England has labels and it does yes. uh, things upon billboards and stuff like that. So why not show them and get some money for them and, you know, make more programmes? Yeah. You are a hard man to find on social media. I'm not sure you're there at all, actually. What's your opinion of it today? I've only done Twitter one day. I, Twitter to me seems a bit like shouting in the street. Right. I've never been a fan of shouting <laughs> in the street. I, I went on one day because we, uh, my wife Angela and I wrote a book called A Normal Family, which was about our son. The Saturday Times did an article and uh, there was some stuff on Twitter about that article. And it was unfair, very unfair to Angela. So I went on 
for one day I, I joined uh, and I wrote to them specifically and explained what had happened in the article, that they got it out of context and explained the ins and outs of what we were trying to do. And I never heard back from them. Right, OK. Uh, but I thought, uh, rather than... And I even said, uh, if you want to come and meet me, I'll be at this place at this time. I thought, I'll genuinely engage. But it doesn't seem like that was a place where people genuinely engage. It just seemed like people, people were sniping. shouting. Now, what I do do is I do Facebook I've loved doing Facebook. I've done it for about three years now. And this seems more like you invite people in and have a chat. So I do Facebook. I get a lot of people write to me after shows and uh, after my radio shows and say, well, I like that particular poem. Could you put that up? Or, you know, we're doing this thing locally. Uh, Could you uh, give us some information? So I find that a very productive way of engaging with the public and having a sort of a, a forum for enthusiasts. But I don't know why I'd go on Twitter. I've not got enough to say every day, no. uh, you know, to anybody, I don't think. No, and you're not going to start taking photographs of your food and putting it on Twitter for everyone to see. <laughs> no. Do you, know, do you know what I find we're doing very strangely at the moment, and, and I'm very conscious of it. This is, you know, I was talking about the way comedians look at patterns. So I, I'm 62 now, and I look back at the news coverage and programmes over the years, and... We're in this new cycle system where everything seems to be knee-jerk and there's no in-depth analysis of anything anymore. And I think this pervades beyond the news. I think it pervades the entire culture. Everybody forgets what happened a fortnight ago. And certainly, you take the Middle East, people don't talk about what happened after the war and how we've got to this stage. And you get people talking about Al-Qaeda and and you think, well, these people existed, the actual human beings existed before the name. Yes. So what did they do before the name? Yes. Who were they before they were this name? There was some other name. And there's nobody talking about that. There's nobody giving you context of how many Islamic uh, fighters are there in the world. Mm. Does any, anybody know? Well, it's on the internet. If you look up on Wikipedia, you can you can find out. There's the same as there are people that go to uh, Man United matches. Wow. Right, so about 50,000, right? So if 50,000 people in this country said we were going to do this, you know, in a, a nation of 60 million, 65 mm. million, I think, we'd say, no, we're not. Mm. You know, we don't all support Man United. Mm, so exactly. uh, um, the context of things and the length of time and what happened before and why we've got to this state seems like nobody's asking those questions. We're just knee-jerking on, you know, this thing happened yesterday in the news and we're telling you about it. But we can't understand it without the context. So what I, I think we need to do with the news is to give the background, to give the understanding. I mean, you probably know that uh, Saddam was a doctor in London. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So when we're talking about Saddam, very often we demonise him, and I don't know the, too much the ins and outs of it, but because we know that his wife's English, and uh, then you can try to put it in a context of who he is and where he's come from and try to understand him in a different way, try to understand ISIS and try to understand how to solve the problem yes. in a different way, as opposed to what you find that majority of people are being fed are these tidbits of information that don't make sense on their own. No, no. And, and I think that pervades uh, how we look at uh, Trump. You, you only remember the last lie. You don't yes. remember the lie before that. And Brexit, I mean, uh, Brexit, if ever there was a way to sort of bludgeon us into submission, 
over not actually caring. Yes. Do you know uh, Brexit's done that, hasn't it? Absolutely. So for me, the thing that we're missing most in terms of communication is context. Yes. Context in terms of the length of time, context in terms of how these things have come together, who are the people we're dealing with, and therefore you can't take the right decisions going forward because you don't really know where the where you've what, come what from the problem is, how right? you've got there absolutely yeah. no that makes perfect sense to me you just touched on a normal family there obviously written about Johnny your son who has autism it's a very instructive book but it's also very moving it's quite uplifting as well has that experience of being a parent with an autistic child impacted your view generally on how we all communicate with each other Yes, in so many ways. The first thing is it makes you slow down. And that in itself is a gift because we do race. I think everybody I know is racing to catch up with a version of themselves that they never succeed in catching. (laughs) And so to slow down and think, actually, you know, if we died tomorrow, what would have been the important thing to do today. He did that for me. It made me slow down. And because Johnny can't communicate well, even to the extent of learning to be silent and learning that there's things you don't have to communicate verbally, and that silence and the thought process in that silence, that's a gift. Then beyond that, it's about realising, because Johnny can't communicate very well, what is important in communication. An interesting quirk is the word why he can't answer. But if you break it down, why always is what do you want to stop or what do you want to start? What do you want to happen or not happen? So if he's agitated, I won't say why are you agitated because he he didn't understand the concept of that. But if I say what do you want to stop Mm -hmm. or what do you want to start, he understands that. Amazing. You find the answer that you need, but you use the language and the concept that he understands. Yes, and it's interesting because I've never thought of why as being that binary choice. No. Well, I suppose what you're doing is you're giving him a narrower question to answer in a way, aren't you? But I think that becomes universal. Right, I think whatever question you can ask why... So you can actually answer it in terms of what you want to stop and what you want to start. start. Okay, I'm going to practice that. I'll, I'll, I'll have a little go that. Um, <laughs> but, but generally, the whole idea of communicating and taking time and trying to be in the other person's world so that you see things from their point of view. So Johnny is very... He gets overwhelmed by things. So if you don't get overwhelmed by things, then you have to make the effort to understand that if there's a noise a long way away, although that's nothing to you, that's something to him. So that taking the time to understand things from another point of view, generally I think that's made me a better person and more tolerant. I also now, whenever I see anybody, I think they could be my son. Right, okay. I I mean anybody. Well, I'm old man, woman, anybody. And so if you want people to treat your child with tolerance and respect, then you've got to realise that you've got to treat them with tolerance and respect. So again, it it makes you see things from other people's point of view, makes you slow down a little bit, makes you not push your agenda too much. It's strange when we first had Johnny, I think 
from my work ethic, I, I think I would probably have expected too much of him if he had been neurotypical. And so the trick now is not to expect too little of him. Oh, how interesting. Okay. Also, I think what you do from your work, and I love listening to you on the radio, is, and I can't find any other words, I'm just going to use it, but you find the humanity in a situation. I think that's what you're describing when you say anyone could be my child, no matter what age, what sex, what religion, but you're identifying with someone in a very human way as another soul. Yes. You know, I think the old thing with humour is about finding humanity. And I, I think I've been very conscious, especially because my mum died when I was 11, of the idea that we uh, have a limited time span mm. and that there must be some way of us working uh, through our lives that was not detrimental to others. And you know when you search for a meaning and everything, it's quite a wide-ranging subject. But to me, it comes down to, I'm not going to see everybody in the world. No. So you can only work from a local basis. But the people that I do see, I'm going to try and be kind to. Mm. And I'm going to try and learn something off them. And sort of that's enough because the greatest brains that have ever lived, I mean, uh, uh, Newton as uh, one of my favourites, is a quote of his where he said uh, that even at the end of his days, he felt like he was just a, a child on a beach. I think his quote was, a child on a beach playing with bright pebbles when the ocean of truth lay before him. Wow. It's a great quote, isn't it? It's an amazing quote. So, so if, if a man of that intellect felt that, then all you can do is interact with those around you. There's a thing called the Dunbar equation. I don't know whether you've heard of this. I've heard of it, but don't ask so me So Dunbar to equation, it. He, uh, a professor called Dunbar, who obviously had enough vanity to name it after <laughs> it, uh, um, worked with various primates and uh, mammals and worked out that because of brain size and uh, culture that you could only interact meaningfully with a certain amount of people in terms of humans it comes down to a, a small village so it comes down to 100 to 150 people so this weird thing that we've got with twitter and internet and fame and everything whereby we're we're dealing with uh, huge groups of people and you know people you know can do concerts in front of 20,000 people it's not what we're built for in terms of you know, our psychology and in terms of uh, us as uh, animals. I did, my, my recent uh, radio show was about nature. And uh, the first thing I do when I do uh, a radio show is I look up the definition of the word. Right. So the definition of the word nature is basically everything but human beings. So that's what I found the most interesting, that we've made a word up for the rest of nature as though that has rules that don't apply to us. We're not nature. These are the rules of nature, and we're not nature. And therein lies the problem, And therein lies the problem, exactly. Thank you, you've saved me half an hour doing the show. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but, I, I, you know, this weird thing that we've got, that we have these great games that we play and these great adventures that we play, and we get very intellectual about uh, stuff. But essentially, we're animals that are used to living in small groups, and that's sort of our, what our psychology is needing. Mm. What's left for you now? Because you've done so much, almost every medium there is. You've returned to writing poetry after quite a long break, I understand. Yeah, yeah, about 20 years, yeah. Are there still challenges? Well, I like to think of poetry as a very condensed 
short form of communication that you can communicate perception. So we communicate lots of different things in lots of different ways, but in terms of how you perceive the world, it's a very good and honest and authentic way of doing it. But strangely enough, I think that poetry I write and and the poetry I I tend to uh, enjoy reading is about communicating with yourself Mm. and telling yourself something about the world and then other people can eavesdrop. (laughs) And, you you know, uh, when I thought about it, I was thinking, that's probably all creativity. All creativity is probably what we're doing is we're telling ourselves something and then everybody else is going, oh, yeah. But isn't there also a truth in in creating something that you yourself would want to watch or listen to? Oh, yeah, all the way through, all the way through. I mean, when we did did Baby Cow, this is something we actually, uh, Steve and I voiced. It was almost like our slogan that we'd only make programmes that we would watch. Why why would you make a programme that you wouldn't watch? If you wouldn't watch it, I don't know how I'd make it better. Yes. I mean, there are shows that I don't like. I find them too obvious and everything. And, well, I don't know, Mrs Brown's boys. Uh, the, the man might be uh, a lovely bloke, but I find his comedy too obvious. And I went to watch, I think it was uh, the cinema, I went to watch a movie, Mission Impossible. And there was a trailer for um, Mrs Brown's boys on beforehand. And I think it was the worst trailer for any film I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> To the point that, and having worked in comedy for 30 years, I couldn't make it worse. Wow. <laughs> I, and, and I was watching it, and I was I couldn't make this worse. And uh, so anyway, I watched the film, uh, and on the way out, I heard uh, a person walking in front of me saying, oh, I'm definitely going to go and see that Mrs Brown's Boys. Amazing. So what do I know? There's an audience for something somewhere. <laughs> In the research for this episode, I wondered if you could tell us a story. I think you were in the US when you went to see a therapist. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah about the time that you were looking into a programme for Johnny. And you said this was someone who'd practised for many years as a therapist. Well, I wouldn't have thought in my lifetime I would ever see a psychiatrist. Mm. This this was something that was in Woody Allen films. Absolutely. You know, and something for Americans. And the idea of a working-class lad, even having got into television and everything, it still seemed like something that was not my world. But when we looked into our best to work with Johnny, because I work in television, I got all the documentaries that had ever been made. Oh, okay. And I was able to to do this. I was able to get them out of archives and and, and watch them. And there was a programme called Sunrise that was made by the head of uh, BBC Two when she was younger, uh, Jane Root. And I said to Jane... This programme looks interesting. Is it truthful? And she said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, she'd made the, the show and it was good. So I took a chance. I went to America and I went to this place called Sunrise. And essentially what they're doing, I mean, if ever there's going to be an in-your-face communication system, the Americans are going to come up with it. Of course. It. So I thought it might have been a bit like some culty religion thing. So I, I kept my phone on for the first hour. <laughs> Thinking if they're after me soul, I'm, I'm phoning me, me father-in-law. But no, they were, they were all right. I thought maybe they're after me money. I didn't mind about that. I, I was going to take a chance. But they actually had a very good way of communicating uh, with the kids, which was basically by getting into uh, the world of the child and enjoying that world and then try to bring the child into your world. Mm. So you had to become an advert for this world, which is, I've got to say, the hardest thing... I've ever done in my life because when I started off I wasn't a particularly nice person I don't think I was a little bit intolerant uh, selfish all the things that you 
don't realise about yourself, but when you put on the spot, you just think, well, that's very negative. And there I was sat in front of my child, and he was about four or five at the time, thinking, how do I stop him from staring out the window? Because he was very much in a world of his own, and bring him into my world. And what sort of advert am I for for, for this world? You know, I'm not the best advert. And it was very odd. And I went to see this psychiatrist to try to get my dominoes in order. To right. get me sorted so that I could sort him. Because if yes. I wasn't sorted, I couldn't sort him. And the, um, the psychiatrist said that he'd been in business for 30 years. And he said every body had got the same problem. My natural scepticism kicked in. I thought, that's rubbish, that is. How can everybody have the same problem? And he said, everybody thinks they're not good enough. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, before he said it, none of it made sense. And right. as soon as he said it, you just think, oh my God, we are all walking around as a species, yeah. all thinking we're not good enough. Yeah, absolutely. And if you understand that, even on a logical basis, forget the feelings of it and everything, but even on a logical basis, and it's getting in the way of something you need to do, mm-hmm. then you can deal with it. Because mm-hmm. the idea that I didn't think I was good enough was not going to get in the way of mm-hmm. me uh, sorting out my mm-hmm. life. Thank you for sharing that, Henry. I'm now going to put you on the spot with these quick fire questions. What is going to surprise people most about Henry Normal? I don't know. Maybe the the fact that I'm exactly the same, really, basically, as I was when I started out on the journey. I still sit and eat egg beans uh, (laughs) on toast uh, of a Saturday tea time. That's my signature dish. (laughs) You know, and watch the football. Uh, I've got a big telly because I'm working class and I've made some money. Uh, uh, um, I, I actually picked the name Henry Normal when I was in my early 20s because I felt very normal. Right. There I was as an insurance broker. I was wearing a suit and I got to perform in front of some punk bands and I toured with the band Pulp oh, yes. before anybody uh, knew them. So I got on stage... I was in a suit because I'd, I'd go join my uh, lunchtime so I'd go straight from work. And I thought, well, people are going to think I'm a bit boring. So if I call myself normal, then I've already done it. And what you'll find with people giving themselves names is they always give themselves names from the previous generation. So Vic Reeves' real name isn't Vic. That's from a previous generation. Frank Skinner's real name is not ah. Frank. That's from a previous generation. So uh, Henry, for me, was from a previous generation. Yes. So that's why I came up with Henry Norman. But thinking at the time and, and all the way through, I've tried to keep hold of that as a philosophy. What one TV show or film should everyone see? And I guess I'm thinking it from particularly from a communicator's point of view. I'm very proud of my wife's film, Snowcake, because having sort of lived in the midst of... Uh, world with autism i know how real that film is we worked with a woman that was very similar to sigourney weaver in in the film uh, ros blackburn who we'd met when uh, trying to find out what we could do to help johnny uh, and so she was a, a an adult autistic woman and sigourney spent weeks with her trying to understand the character and uh, i think my wife wrote it in such a way that 
And well, it, it makes me cry a good five times every time I watch the, the film. I have to sort of lessen my uh, sort of, uh, <laughs> exposure. exposure to it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, the first time I met Ros Blackburn, she did a talk about her life as an autistic woman. And she was nonverbal when she was a kid. But now, uh, well, you can't stop her. She taught for England. Fantastic. Uh, and at the end of the discussion, she said that, she would take questions. Right. So I knew I'd only get one question to ask mm. her. And Johnny was about three or four at the time. And uh, I wanted it to be a worthwhile question, you know, because I'm going to get this, this chance. And it mattered a lot to me. So I said to her, do you love your mum and dad? That's a strange question to ask when you think about it. But I, that's how little I knew about uh, autism. I, I said, do you love your mum and dad? And uh, she paused a second and she said, they're very useful. <laughs> that's a brilliant answer. What a great way of describing love. Yeah. They're very useful. So I took that and I thought, well, I'm going to be useful. Right, okay. That's a great way to love anybody. Yes, to be, be useful. useful. useful to them. Yeah, that's brilliant. So when you're pushing him on a swing or when you're feeding him or getting him down from a tree, that's and, love. And it, it, it is love. And if you think about it, when we were talking about the royal family and we are saying that they don't say I love you, mm. they don't say I love you, but they say I love you in so, so many, many other ways. Mm. When you're 17 or 18 and you first fall in love with somebody and you say I love you to them and, and it's a moment isn't it? and they say I love you, if you keep saying that, it wanes a bit. It does it? wane. <laughs> But strangely enough, doing something for somebody who doesn't. No, but it's also what we talk a lot about is show it rather than say it. Yes. Show, don't tell. And actually quite the opposite. If you say it and your actions don't back that up, I'm sorry, your words then are completely meaningless. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you wouldn't fail? That's a big one, isn't it? Cure all diseases. Right. That would be the first thing I'd do. And then probably I'd build a time machine, go back in time, tell me not to worry. <laughs> when, you're, when you're young, you worry too much, don't you? You do worry too much. And, uh, you know, obviously when, when you get uh, older, you, you wonder why you wasted so much time worrying. Mm. So this is a tricky one and a really unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's the best joke ever? <laughs> uh, well, I'll give you uh, two. One you can tell for kids. So my, my best joke for uh, the, that's innocent, and I just love the innocence about it, is uh, a man goes uh, into a shop and he says, uh, I'd like to buy a wasp. Uh, and uh, the shopkeeper says, we, we, we don't sell wasps. He says, well, you got one in the window. <laughs> <laughs> lovely and innocent isn't that, isn't that but the thing is you're laughing as soon as he's asked for a wasp exactly. <laughs> but, but see that, that's the, we were talking about Freud earlier on that's a standard concept that you put an image into the mind of a person and then you twist the consequence yes. of that, that image that you realise that he thinks that they're for sale so my other favourite joke is this one so uh, a man's up in court and he's up in court for indecent exposure and uh, the judge says to him, how do you plead? And he said, uh, innocent, uh, Your Honour, uh, I was uh, um, making love to my wife. And he said, what are you talking about? Your, your wife's dead. He said, yes, I, I was making love to a ghost. And the judge says, that's ridiculous. And he turns to the court and he says, 
I've never heard anything so... Has anybody here ever made love to a ghost? Anybody had sex with a ghost? And a bloke uh, at the back puts his hand up. And the just says, you've had sex with a ghost? He says, oh, sorry, I thought you said goat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I'm like, I can't, I can't see. It's, a, it's a similar thing. It's called a reveal. So, yes. so, so you, your mind's going one way. Yes. And then you reveal the consequences another way. Yes. It's a, a st- standard comic point. <laughs> I love the stupidity of, of that. Right, now, this is the final question. It's courtesy of another podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show. You've got a billboard. And on this billboard, it's blank at the moment, but you can put anything on it for millions to see. You can write anything on it at all. What is that one message that you're going to write on this billboard? I think uh, be kind. Because if it causes anybody to be kinder, then it will have done some good. Yes, absolutely. And that's probably nice and simple, isn't it? Absolutely. Works for me. Henry Normal, thank you very much indeed for being on the Internal Comms podcast. Cheers. (laughs) So that's a wrap for episode six of the Internal Comms podcast. For links to Henry's recent Radio 4 show, his books and the many other things that we talked about in this episode, go to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk, A-B-C-O-M-M. While you're there, you might like to sign up for I Saw This and Thought of You. It's our monthly newsletter for internal communicators, a roundup of the latest news reports, trends and general goings-on in the world of IC. It's also where you'll hear about future episodes and future guests, our live events and receive bonus content. Now I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on the show and in particular your ideas for future guests. Now there's lots of ways to get in touch. You can share your views on Twitter, we're at abthinks or simply email me directly icpodcast at abcom.co.uk If you enjoyed the show I'd be grateful if you could rate it on iTunes because apparently that's the very best way of making us more discoverable for other internal communicators out there. And to make sure you don't miss another episode, do please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. All that remains is for me to say thank you. Thank you for listening to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. And until we meet again, remember, it's what's inside that counts.